one thing about parenting that I think people should talk about more, that a lot of times by the time kids get to their teen years, parents maybe feel like, oh, this is a good time for me to go back to college or get a second job or do my own thing. But I think it's really important to know in those years, your kids need you more than ever. And you just have to be careful to not think you're done. You know, even if they're taking all of it out on you and you're like, oh my gosh, I really want to run away, but I have to stay here because I actually have to protect you. That's Maggie Baird. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Anybody who's a parent knows that it's just hard. It's really hard, even under the best circumstances. But imagine parenting two kids, two musical homeschooled kids, and trying to keep them grounded as they skyrocket to just insane fame. I certainly can't imagine that. But this week's guest can because she has lived it and continues to live it. Her name is Maggie Baird. And if that name sounds familiar, it could be because she's an actor, a performer with a long list of credits to her name, but more likely it's because she's like the coolest mom ever to two of the biggest musicians in the world. Billie Eilish, yes, that Billie Eilish, the seven-time Grammy award-winning 19-year-old Billie Eilish, and Billy's equally talented eight-time Grammy-winning 23-year-old brother, Phineas, all of whom are portrayed alongside Maggie's husband, Patrick O'Connell, in the recent and quite amazing documentary on Apple TV Plus called The World's a Little Blurry, which is, to my mind at least, this beautiful story about coming of age, but also it's a documentary about family, it's about parenting and the challenges faced by a mom and a dad just trying to consciously guide their talented kids through this vertigo-inducing ascent to superstardom. Maggie's also a longtime vegan. She's an animal rights and environmental activist. And she's also the founder of something called Support and Feed, which is an incredible and relatively new nonprofit that partners with restaurants across America and soon the world to provide plant-based meals to those experiencing food insecurity. We're gonna dig in in a sec, but first. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost science-based habit building program designed by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on inside tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash 
living proof. Okay, Maggie Baird. So this is a conversation about activism. It's about solving food insecurity, the growth of the plant-based movement and working to make the music industry touring more sustainable. It's about the challenges of pursuing an artistic life. It's about parenting, how to raise conscious kids and the benefits of homeschooling and unschooling. It's also about what happens when, when your kids, not suddenly, but, but fairly quickly become insanely famous at a young age. And it's about organizing your life and your family's priorities around what is most important. If you haven't caught it yet, please make a point of checking out the documentary about Maggie's family. It's called The World's a Little Blurry. You can find it on Apple TV Plus. I absolutely loved it. I've watched it a couple times and I love this conversation. So Terry, no longer shall I. Please enjoy my conversation with the awesome Maggie Bear. So nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. Thank you for coming out here. Um, I'm actually surprised we haven't met previously uh, in the kind of extended vegan mafia universe <laughs> <laughs> that we that we sort of occupy. We've you know we've got lots of mutual friends in common. Um, I tried to get Toby Morse out today to join us. He wanted to, but he had band practice. <laughs> he texted me a few times. So yeah, he sends his love and also uh, John Lewis. Oh, I know you're close yeah. with. Well, you He's know, a, good friend. a lot of these people, to be honest, I've only met this year mm -hmm. through the incredible Jeanette. And although I've been like a lifelong almost vegetarian and then and vegan, I just wasn't that well versed in the larger community. Uh -huh. The of, ecosystem yeah. of Los Angeles yeah. <laughs> veganism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was busy, you know, doing other things, kind of some in sad ways, kind of being a solo person in that. So mm -hmm. it's been really fun for me to yeah. connect with that world. It's a tight knit, small community. Yeah. I but love it. Uh, very mutually supportive. Yeah. I, I wish I had found it sooner. Yeah. You know, I really didn't. Um, John just premiered the new movie. They're trying to kill us at Tribeca. I You've know. seen it, yeah. I have you're seen you're it. involved in some capacity. I don't. Billy know. is an honorary executive right. producer. Yeah, I didn't know I if that I'm was on public. A producer yet. thing. Mm -hmm. I think it is. Yeah. Is it cool? Yeah. It, it came out with the Tribeca thing. Yeah, it's going to be great when yeah, people see so it. I can't important. wait for people to see it. It's so important. It's just. Yeah. It's very eye opening. It deals with the issue of food poverty and the inequalities with respect to how we're feeding the population, food deserts and how that disproportionately impacts people's health in lower economic strata, especially in urban areas, which dovetails pretty nicely with support and feed and everything that you're doing right now. Yeah, it's kind of right up our alley. John came out and he did film a little bit of what we were doing. I think that's in the movie. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's right in line with what we're trying to do. Right, so explain to people what it is. So Support and Feed started at the beginning of the COVID crisis, really as a response to the COVID crisis, you know, let, we realized that I, I was on tour with Billy. A lot of what I do with mm. Billy, well, I do a lot of things, but a lot of the things I do are centered around helping her, everything she does be sustainable and green, socially conscious and everything else. So we were we were on tour, we had a very green tour. You know, we mm -hmm. had a 
company called Reverb with us. We had all vegan catering for everyone. The most amazing catering, by the way. And, you know, we had our venue, everything set up, recycling centers for water filling. COVID happened, we came home. It was a bummer on every level. And then we just started talking like, wow, this is going to be so bad for so many people. So many people are going to need food. So many people will be out of work. And all oh, the plant-based restaurants, all oh, that we mm-hmm. depend on so much that we love so much because they help people learn about plant-based food. They're so important. They're so small usually. So we we like ordered a bunch of food from Sage actually. Yeah. And had, the Sage and Echo Park. The though. Sage and yeah, Echo yeah. Park, yeah. Uh-huh. And we had it delivered to the Midnight Mission. We we're like, all oh, that, we could do that, you know? And then I was like, that's a good idea, but that's not, that's not really gonna do it, you know? So overnight I kind of, I had this moment in my mind of like, oh, this could be a big thing. This this could really do something. You know that feeling when you're like about to step into what you know is gonna mm, be a major project. Yeah. You're like, do I really wanna do that? <laughs> yeah. um, Better get your growth mindset on. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You're like, I could just walk right by that idea, you know? Mm-hmm. But the next morning I made a few calls. Those calls connected to me a few more people, including the amazing Jeanette and Rose and, um, Nick, all these incredible people who mm. just jumped right in. Um, Justin, even at Billy's label, and within a week we launched a we we had not only launched a website, we were delivering meals. Mm-hmm. The premise being, we would buy plant based meals from restaurants, so super high quality, delicious, nourishing. Take them to people experiencing food insecurity through community organizations, helping people meet their need for food that's healthy, also supporting the local community and economy and exposing people to plant-based food, helping the climate because we know how important it is. That was the idea. And that's what we did. Right. And it was pretty amazing. We had a hundred percent volunteer operation and still do actually until next month when we finally are going to have some paid employees. Um, and and as we did that, now to align more with what John is talking about is, you know, once we stepped into the world of food insecurity, and I'm going to admit I was very naive about it. I just didn't. I just didn't know enough. You know, you step into that world, you realize where your mission can be most effective. In the beginning, we were also feeding frontline workers, which was mm-hmm. great because they really needed the help and they really needed the vegan food, you know? They were getting inundated with pizzas, et cetera. And when our food would show up, they would be so overjoyed. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Surprising because oh. you'd think like, oh, these guys need meat. Oh, well, you that's know, what people would say to us. Like, on that. Yeah, yeah. no, it, they were so, especially the hospital workers, you know, mm-hmm. and I would get messages from other people like, oh, I heard that the best day is when the support and feed meals come, you know, but we did realize that the biggest mission we could address was food insecurities in food apartheid, mm-hmm. places where people had lack of access to healthy food. And, you know, there's so much hunger, there's so much food insecurity. So where could we make the biggest impact, help people the most, help the planet the most, mm-hmm. help everything associated with plant-based eating. So we really focus on community orgs that serve communities that have lack of access to healthy food, then those those organizations started asking for more information for their community. The people were loving the food. Many people had never had plant-based food. Some sure. of them 
frankly didn't want it in the beginning. Uh, so that was part of the mission of like giving them the best food, like the highest quality delicious food. And they got turned on to it. The lines started getting longer on the days our meals came. And they started asking for, for information just about the health benefits, the, you know, how to make it at home, et cetera. So we really started addressing that. And, and now we've really pivoted to, not really pivoted, but like transitioned as we move forward out of COVID crisis to really climate crisis and food justice mm-hmm. is really our mission. Mm. So on that arc of learning about food injustice and food apartheid, et cetera, what was the, you know, what, what did you learn that you didn't know going into it? You know, I had a vague knowledge, but it's a really deep subject. And, you know, it was an incredible year, as we know, the whole George Floyd horrific, mm-hmm. you know, the, the summer, the, all the protest, you know, it was a learning time. And I was immersing myself in that as well. And, and learning about the systemic racism in the food system. I mean, I knew a little bit, but to really have at the same time that we were doing support and feed to really be learning about redlining and the the lack of even grocery stores in communities and why that exists and mm. why the fact that there was a grocery store and then it closed and there now can't be a grocery store for 15 to 20 years. You know, this was really eye-opening to me. And at the same time, I was actually physically making the deliveries in LA with our other amazing volunteers and going to communities and, and you know, I, I remembered literally driving to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Challengers of the of Metro LA for a delivery. And at the same time, listening to an NPR story about how the temperature in that very community would be one to two degrees higher in the summer for the lack of plants and trees, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it was all kind of coming at the same yeah. time. And I've always been really obsessed with, you know, climate change. I mean, for 35, 35 years ago, I was, I was wearing a shirt that said, stop eating McDonald's, the Amazon rainforest. You know, you know, I, I had stats 35, you know, this isn't like, yeah, this new. Is, you're not Johnny come lately to this. This is, <laughs> <laughs> bred into you from the get-go. Yeah, and also I, I think it's 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 crazy. Like there's a, a certain idea now that it's like new information. It's like, this is not new. Bono was shouting about this 35 years ago, you know? We knew, we knew what we were headed for. People just didn't want to make a change. The government mm-hmm. didn't want to make a change. The you know, we we all know about the you know the suppression of information and the the heavy power that the lobbying industries of the meat and dairy industry have. But we've known this was coming. We have known, mm. and it's really criminal that we've gotten this far. But all that was kind of happening at the same time. It was almost like it was being fed to me, and and then at the same time, this crazy thing happened. I was like trying to find a book to listen to to go to sleep, and I happened to have on my like Audible list of books I had gotten on tour, the tipping point, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that'll probably put me to sleep. But no, it didn't put me to sleep at all. (laughs) I was like wide awake going, oh my gosh, this is where we are, Mm -hmm. you know? And these are the things we could do to help help this tip, you know? There's so many things right now happening. So it was all very concurrent for me. Yeah, well, what's powerful about that is just taking that step. I mean, for many of us, if not most of us, the problem just seems overwhelming if you acknowledge it and it feels like we're powerless to actually do anything. So we just continue to live our lives. But here in the midst of the COVID year, you had this idea, you executed on it with just like, hey, let's go to this restaurant and get some food to these people. And it's 
scaled up now into this real thing where you've, I mean, this is happening in like, we have like four cities right now that are doing this. We have four cities and we're gonna be on tour next year on Billy's tour, she has an eco village with mm. Reverb. We'll oh, be part cool. of the eco village. We'll be meeting people, getting in all the cities. We'll be able to do deliveries. So we're scaling up. We have in our five-year plan to be a presence in all 50 mm-hmm. states, at least doing some activations. Because a lot of what we're doing is we're feeding people, but food is part of the step of what we're doing, right? People really need the food. But if we can empower people to know oh, plant-based food is good and plant-based food is healthier for me and the planet. I'm gonna ask for plant-based food. I'm, I'm, a lot of organizations feed people. They need to be including plant-based food sure. as part of their strategy. Sure. If, if, if all the organizations that feed people could, could switch to having at least 50% plant-based meal, that could make a major impact on people's health and the climate. So part of what we're doing is just trying to be a part of that culture of change of like eye opening, like, oh, this is a thing. I want this. I deserve this, you know? Yeah. That conversation would have been sheer lunacy even 10 years ago. You know, it's crazy how much things have changed. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, not just what you're doing, but John's movie that's on the precipice of coming out. I know Jaden Smith has his I love you truck. He goes down to Skid Row and delivers free plant-based meals to people there. Like I literally talked to Jaden yesterday. He's the best. He is the best. I just that kid is incredible. I love him. Yeah. And we were just talking about all the ways, you know, we could help him. He could help us. We could, you know, what he's doing is amazing. And he has that attitude of like he just sees a problem and he's like, how do I fix this? How do I do it? What do I throw at this? You know, that guy has no problem getting into action. It's unbelievable what he's capable of manifesting. Like he's doing so many things. It's amazing. Yeah, he's really And the water thing too, which is a big deal when you're on tour and all the plastic bottles and all of that, all the waste, it's crazy, right? Well, that's how it started for me. Like the first tours, you know, you know, when you're touring in the beginning, I mean, you literally are in a, a van, you know, mm-hmm. you're in a white Sprinter van. Well, at first you're just in a car and you're just hauling it, you know, to San Diego, but then you're in a white Sprinter van, you know, and you get to a venue and it's just, it was quite shocking to me, you know, to go from my, my little life, you know, where I've been using cloth grocery bags for you know, 35 uh-huh. years and, you know, reusable bottles, you know, it's been such a part of my life. And then to go out and be like, what is, what is with this? You know, what is the plastic water bottles? Where's the recycling? Where is the, this, you know? And, and in the beginning, you know, I kind of encountered an attitude of like, that's how it's done. You know, that's how it's done. That's how it's been done. Nothing you can do about mm-hmm. it. You know, I was like, I don't think that's true. Like, I think we could do yeah. something about this. But yeah, it's it's a real, I mean, it's it's a major switch right now in the touring industry and Reverb, which is an incredible company, is a lot of that. Um, I got, you know, I just started asking a lot of questions and I'd, I'd ask this and then somebody would say, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. And, you know, actually Chris Martin called me one day and I was uh-huh. like, I was walking around like, Chris Martin's on my phone. <laughs> you know, I was so excited. <laughs> that is exciting. <laughs> but he was calling me to recommend because mm. I'd said, who can connect me with somebody? And he connected me with Reverb. So that's an organization that creates sustainable touring. solutions for touring. Yeah, mm-hmm. sustainable. And they have the Music Climate Revolution starting this year. All these artists, including Billy, Phineas, have signed on to have carbon positive tours, you know, with all the various things you have to put in place to do yeah. that. But that's their whole mission is greening 
screening touring and, and advising, like to help advise us on, you know, honestly, like what kind of vinyl, what, you know, can we use 100% recycled vinyl? Can we use this? Can we use that? You know, the, the trick is there's never a perfect answer and you have to be, yeah, you have to kind of weigh stuff. And we don't live in a society right now that's great with that. You no. know, and you have, everything's binary. Yeah, and people are super judgmental. Like it's like, oh, you did this and you didn't do that. It's like, there's subtleties in this and you're trying to make change and it doesn't all happen over, overnight and it doesn't happen 100%. And I think it's really important that we we look at, we look at what is happening in a in a positive way, and I don't, I'm trying to say like there's this there's some reluctance on some people to take any steps for fear that they will be cut down for not being sure. 100% perfect. If you just adhere to the status quo, nobody says boo. The minute you try to change something for the better, you get criticized for not doing enough or doing it wrongly, and that's not a very encouraging environment. Exactly. For people exactly. who might be interested in participating in that positive change. Exactly. It's like, oh, you're a hypocrite because you did this. It's like, you know, these other people are literally doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah, really, yeah. really trying. So yeah. just to say that, but reverb helps us make those decisions, you know, because it's always a decision. Like, should we make the tour bus biodiesel? Here's the pros and cons. Or should we do this, which will not be that, but it'll, mm-hmm. you know, offset in another way. Yeah. Those are the kind of decisions yeah. you If you, you go make. biodiesel, then you're opening yourself up to all the criticism about that. But there is no electric truck and even if or bus, and even if there was, then it would be like, well, do you know how they create the electricity for the bus? Like you, you really can't win. So the only way to move forward is to make those best decisions and immunize yourself from all the chatter yeah. that goes on around it. Was Reverb part of the Live Nation decision to go plastic free, like with the with the water bottles and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I'm I'm really happy to say I think a lot of some of that has come from Billy. You know, we've been pushing mm-hmm. for a long time to have these things, and Re- and Live Nation has been very very responsive. Yeah. Um, Shout out Michael Rapino. Yeah, I mean, they've been really responsive. You know, we went in with a lot of concerns and, and they've listened. And I mean, some very cool things are happening, you know, even just, you know, on Billy's tour, you know, some of the arenas are actually kind of changing their names to be a, away from names that are associated with meat and they're adding vegan <laughs> substitutes uh-huh. and they've really come a long way. And what's been really cool is that in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of me being a nudge. I mean, I was annoying. I mean, I'm sure everyone found me very annoying. <laughs> oh no, Maggie's on the call. Uh-huh. What's she going to ask, you know? But it's gone from me going like, you know, what about this? And what about this? And can we do this to them literally presenting us? They've laid it out. They're like, they are coming to to us with, we found a way to make this sustainable and we found a way to do this. And we know you might be concerned about this. So we've already addressed it. It's massive. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's the responsible, effective use of the power that you wield to be in this very privileged position with everything that's going on to be able to create those kind of changes in the world. I mean, if you're not gonna do that, then what else are you doing? What you else? Is, and also to be honest, you know, the the, the challenges, you know, listen, the life of, of, of my family is, it's, it's great. There's so many perks, but you know, there's challenges to that sure. kind of thing too. And what makes it worth it is, 
you can do some good, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the only thing to do in life, I think, you know? And, you know, my brother always says, you know, Billy and Phineas have a superpower and it always depends on how you use it. And, you know, it's that superpower is having a platform and having, you know, being able to take action. And a lot of that's not super visible to people. It doesn't need to be visible. It's what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, behind the scenes mm-hmm. that that's really, you know, changing, but it's also what you you actively promote as well. Sure. I want to talk about the family piece. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm just <laughs> obsessed with your family after watching the documentary, which I absolutely loved. As somebody who's been an activist and feels strongly about so many of these issues that we're talking about, and as this Uber mom who, who you know, raised their kids with this ethos, how did you, my feeling is that kids go one or two ways with this stuff, either they're on board because they revere their parents and they wanna model their behavior after the example that their parents set, or, and at some point they need to kind of push the envelope and stretch their own limbs a little bit and separate. And they do that by rebelling or, <laughs> or, or doing the opposite of the example that was set to distinguish themselves and their individuality. But it seems like with Billy and Phineas, they're on board with all of these ideas. Like they're as passionate about this stuff as as you are. Yeah, I mean, I, you, I think you're absolutely right. Those things can go either way. And I mean, we're lucky. We we definitely always talked about these things. You know, there was they 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 got the message of why always. You know mm-hmm. why. So if you're hearing the reason behind it, people used to say when they were little, like why why don't you let them eat meat? You know, I was like, well, because. I'm responsible at this point for their health and their well-being, and that includes their moral and mental health. And when I look back at my life, I regret having ever eaten meat, right? And so at this point, when I believe ethically, morally, for all the reasons we know that it's correct to not eat it, that's what we're gonna do. Now, when they grow up, they have a right to change and think whatever they want, but they won't look back and regret not having done something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like having done it, you you can't take that back, but having not done it, you can you can do it later. So, so that was kind of the philosophy there. But then along the way, you talk about why, you know, you talk about why do we do it? And, you know, they, they hear it and, you know, are they indoctrinated in it? Yes, yeah. but you're indoctrinating as opposed to an entire culture that's trying to indoctrinate in a different way, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, I think it's just that they they learned about it. I mean, I remember watching a documentary with Billy, a David Attenborough documentary. I mean, it, it was radical to her, you know, really, really yeah. affected her. So it just was kind of part of our family. And I think it was, um, it got into their into their mindset. And, you know, is there probably a little bit about like, Oh my gosh, what what would my mom think? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but you know they have other things that they do that uh-huh. are you know not something I would do. You know, I have no tattoos. Right. <laughs> yet, 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 Maggie, there's still time. That's what I meant to say. Um, well, this goes personal. back a long time for you, as you mentioned. You grew up in Colorado. Your dad was like a hunter and a fisherman. So were you the odd duck out to say I want to be vegetarian as a kid? My brothers became vegetarians too. My father wow. fish. We always went fishing. His indoctrination didn't didn't, didn't work, work the same yeah. way. <laughs> My dad was awesome, by the way, and he loved the outdoors. He'd been an 
asthmatic kid on the East Coast got sent out to the West to go to boarding school because he would literally die in the East. And he discovered the out of doors and he loved it. He loved fishing. He went hunting every year. It was, and I grew up in Western Colorado. That was a big part of the culture. I loved going fishing with my dad because, you know, it meant sitting in a boat outside Mm -hmm. all day. He threw all the fish back, you know, eventually. Um, And he had three kids who didn't want to eat meat or fish. Isn't that funny? Like not not one of us would ever eat a fish ever. And none of us would eat a deer. Um, We all eschewed. I don't think any of us ever ate steak. Like those things, I don't know, something in our DNA. You know, we were kind of made to eat meat, but like the only thing we'd do is, you know, the most burnt kind Mm -hmm. of unrecognizable. I remember the only time I was ever kind of punished, I sat at a table for many, many hours. I have a very, very clear memory of sitting at a table because I would not eat a bite of venison. Um, so I don't know why we all, my brothers so are not vegan, but they're they still st- vegetarians. They still are to this day? They're still wow. vegetarian. They've never eaten meat uh-huh. ever since Some weird their teenage rogue, years. Like yeah. a DNA fragment or something that happened along the way. Yeah, I've, met <laughs> other, I've met other people like that uh-huh. who for no kind of obvious reason from early on were like, I'm not eating that. And, you know, at the time it was really 100% the animal component, mm-hmm. you know, it was, I'm not gonna eat an animal. And then of course, later it became about the environment. And then very sadly, my mother died of a heart attack at 57, suddenly. And my mother had been in a family where heart disease was very prevalent. My brothers and I all have genetically extremely high cholesterol. So, you know, the health component definitely came in at that point, you know. Yeah, I think there is something about growing up in proximity to animals though, so many, vegan activists grew up on farms and perhaps something about your dad going out and hunting and being around those large animals or, you know, in a different way from the way you experience them when you just go to the grocery store or the restaurant. For sure. When you see Bambi's mom, you know. Yeah. Well, it goes two ways. Either you become the hunter and the fisherman and there is a beautiful appreciation for nature and a deeper connection to the food that you're eating. So, you know, I wanna make sure I say that, but also that sensitivity to the fact that it is a sentient being that didn't exactly sign up for being eaten. Yeah, and interestingly, I would agree with you about the hunting. I mean, a lot of people over my lifetime, I've heard say things like, I would never hunt. And I'm like, but you would buy it in a package at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And to me, if I'm if I'm gonna have an opinion, I'd be like, I would respect someone who hunts it more than someone who would never hunt it. Yeah, they're but being honest it. about they're the equation. Honest. Yeah. And they're doing they're doing the terrible dirty work themselves, not expecting someone else to do it. And I will say that in my father's later life, he died of pulmonary fibrosis 20 years ago. He he did not feel good about the hunting. He, he kind of regretted it. Mm. So he came to a different place with it in his older age. Is he he still wasn't around? that old. He was no, he died at 74. Yeah. Mm. So he didn't he didn't love it. He didn't love looking back at it. So he came somewhere with it That's too. That's interesting. Yeah. If he'd stuck around a little bit longer, maybe he would have gone in your direction. I think it would be interesting. And also for his health, you know, here's something kind of interesting. You know, I was a vegetarian for many years. Well, since I was a teenager, but you know, and when I became a vegan, you know, it was all the reasons, you know, 
I learned about the animal agriculture, the dairy and the eggs, and it just became unavoidable. It was like, you know, you can only deny it. You know, oh, it's cage-free eggs. Oh, it's this. And then you go, oh, all of that's kind of nonsense, right? So I did it. Massively changed. Um, I had really been developing arthritis in my hands. That went away. Then my family, who was all vegetarian, Patrick, Phineas, and Billy, they came to it separately later. And each of them had a major health change from it. Each, each different. My husband had had a lifelong problem choking on food. Um, and it was like quite serious. He'd mm. had to have several medical procedures and it was like a daily occurrence. So did Phineas. And when he gave up dairy, it went away. It's crazy. Basically overnight. Yeah. Turned out is a condition called enosynphilic esophagitis. And at the time they didn't know what it was, but subsequently they have discovered it. It's a it's an allergy in your esophagus, primarily today, dairy, eggs, fish. Wow. Also, yeah, isn't that's that crazy? Wild. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> so crazy. He yeah. had all this medical stuff. And he first went to the doctor and he was like, he told the doctor, like, I cured it. And the doctor, of course, didn't believe him. Mm-hmm. And then you know, eventually within the next year or two, they, they the discovered it. The science catches it. up. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. Isn't it? So where does the performer emerge? How does that happen in Western Colorado? I don't know. I looked at the TV at age two and said, that's what I want to do. Apparently mm-hmm. that's what my parents always said. All I ever remember saying was I want to be an actor. I don't know where I even got the idea. Um, I, just, and I mean, I grew up in a small town. So yeah, yeah I just always wanted to be an actor. And uh, you know, Lily Tomlin was on Laugh-In. That looked like the greatest thing in the world. And I loved Kapaloo with Jane Fonda. And <laughs> I just wanted to be an actor. I don't yeah. know. Never, I never wavered either. Never was there wavered. local theater in your town or how, were you able to apply yeah. that trade at an early age or not until college? Uh, high school, yeah, junior mm-hmm. high, high school, you know, the minute there was a play. I remember doing like a drama contest in high school, you know, how you do, which seems so stupid. Like you take your play to the state. I remember before going on, just like sobbing and the director was like, what's going on? I was like, well, nobody else really cares about, it, but this is like my whole life, mm-hmm. you know, like it was so serious. Uh-huh. <laughs> So yeah, I did like all the high school plays. Then I went to college to study acting. And, sure. Yeah. And then you end up in New York at a pretty young age. Yes. I quit Make it college. on Broadway, Iceman Cometh? I did. Well, I was an understudy in the Iceman Cometh. Uh, Me and Stanley Tucci actually wow. were the understudies uh-huh. in the Iceman Cometh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I quit college, moved to New York, went to a Shakespeare company and then lived in New York City, worked in regional theater. That's what you do when you're mm-hmm. a young actor in New York. You you know, work at Cincinnati Playhouse in Florida and Seattle. And I'll, I met my husband working in Alaska. So oh, wow. that was my early years. Yeah, it's interesting if you pull up your IMDB, I mean, you have a zillion credits. Yeah, if you spread them but, out over yeah. <laughs> a large time, they look impressive. Like every TV show not. from Six Feet Under to LA Law and you know everything in between, West Wing, you were on Friends, like it's crazy how many shows that you've been on. But I think it, 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 there, is, there is a sort of uh, myth dispelling that we could do, you know, the contrast between looking at all those credits and what the reality of that life is. I mean, you're very much a journeyman actor, mm-hmm. you know, living from gig to gig in a situation where you have very little control over your destiny. Like there's so little control over the arc of your career. It's the worst. It's really the yeah. worst. It's so it's it's a little different for actors now because there's ways to create content mm-hmm. more easily, but 
Yeah, I mean, you spread, you know, it does look impressive on IMDb, but you're like, well, that's like, you know, how many jobs in a year and how much did it actually pay and what was your role? And some of those were really nice roles. I was cut out of more movies than I've ever been seen in. You know, there's that. And yeah, that the working class actor is a real... It's it's much more of a thing than people know. I think, you know, LA is full of working class actors, people who manage to make a living, not a great living. Mm-hmm. Maybe they supplement that living by teaching or, or working another job, but, you know, they manage to kind of keep their foot in the door. And, and that's what I was. That's what Patrick was. And, you know, you're you're always one call away from... You know, I remember saying to my dad- That's the crazy thing. It's like pulling the slot machine because it's that, you know, oh, here comes pilot season. If this one goes, like everything changes and it keeps you in. I did did two or three network deals. Network is when you're like, you've auditioned, you've auditioned, you've had callbacks. And then they're like, they literally write out your deal. Yeah. So you know what you're going to make if you get the job, but you have one more step, which is going to network. And I never even went to network because the two times that are coming to mind, both of those fell apart right before the audition because, oh, so-and-so wants Mm -hmm. somebody to get it and they don't want you in the room because you might, you know, it was like craziness, crazy. And those are like, you're this close to like a major change of your life. Yeah. And it's impossible to not like forecast into the future what that life is going to look like. I have a... In my past life, I was an entertainment lawyer. So I've negotiated oh. pilot deals before. And it is crazy. Like it's literally, okay, this is what your life is gonna look like for the next seven years, what you're gonna get paid every year. It has to be fully negotiated and signed before the network even has decided whether the show is gonna be a thing. That's true. So that plays into that fantasy that more often than not is dispelled because those shows end up in the graveyard. The show ends up in the graveyard. Yeah. You don't get it. You you know something happens. Yeah, it's it's a very weird world and it's also very not Listen, there's amazing people who do incredibly well. I don't want to put, you know, take that away. But there's also incredible talent out there that just never gets a break, mm-hmm. never gets the, you know, never gets a chance. The things fall apart, the show closes, you know, all those things happen and it's not like a merit-based career. Not at all. You know, it's yeah, not, not like if you do this, this and this, this will happen. No, not not at all. It's really, you know, when my dad was alive, we were talking about the um the psychology experiment where the pigeon pecks at the door. Uh-huh. And the pigeon pecks at the door and every time the pigeon pecks the door opens there's food, right? So the if but then if they take the food away, the pigeon stops pecking unless the pecking is random. Like the pigeon pecks, sometimes the door opens. The pigeon pecks, sometimes it doesn't. If it's random and then you take the food away, the pigeon will just keep pecking forever. forever. (laughs) And I was talking about that with with my dad and he goes like, well, that sounds kind of like your business. Mm I was like, oh my God, Doug, we just keep pecking, yeah. thinking the door is gonna open. <laughs> gotta keep gotta keep that health insurance going. You well, know? that's really that's literally been my life for, you know, twenty-three years mm-hmm. since I had children, especially just can I get my health insurance? Can I get my health insurance? And people in the industry are nice, like sometimes they know like you desperately need your health insurance. In fact, my role on friends, which the episode is about Joey needing his health insurance. 
I got that because the casting director was someone I knew from the Groundlings, and I was like, Tony, I'm going to lose my health insurance. And he brought me in, and I got the job. That's, that's wild. So that's, Very meta. it was actually a health insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Groundlings seems like it was fun though. You were, you were there at a golden era with all kinds of interesting was fun. people. It was, uh, it and was then you taught fun. there too, yeah. Yeah, I taught there. Yeah, it was fun. You know, some, one of my best friends still is from the Groundlings, Amy. Um, yeah, it was a fun. You know, I, I came out to LA from a play. I'd been touring in a play and my mother had recently died and I, I was very sad. And I came out and I saw a show with the Groundlings that another friend of mine was in. I was like, oh, that looks like so much fun. Uh-huh. Wow, I didn't honestly didn't even know that existed. Like I'd always wanted to be like Lily Tomlin on SNL, all that, but I had been in the kind of more serious acting world, you know, the more traditional acting world. So uh, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's for me. I wanna go do that. Mm. So I started taking classes to the Growlings. And the thing about that was you just laugh so hard all the time, you know? And teaching the same. I really miss teaching. It's not easy for me to do that now, but I miss teaching because it's just laughing for three hours, right. you know, teaching improv. You taught Melissa McCarthy. Well, not that she needed to learn anything. So let's just say she was in, in my class. In your I, class. I had her in class for one. That's cool though. Base, I was her basic teacher, her first teacher wow. at the Groundlings. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that whole class of Melissa's was great. Everybody in that class was great. Mm. I think Tate Taylor went on to be a you know successful director. I mean, I could name, I don't want to name people because I will miss somebody and they were all great. Her whole class was great. So. Fundamentally, I think of you as a teacher in general, like that, that's your lane. I think that's where you excel because that shows up throughout your life in all these different ways, like whether it's through some kind of odd job or the way that you raised your kids or the groundlings, like when in doubt, like you find a way to be a teacher in some capacity. Like it feels like you're always pivoting back to that. Well, it's interesting because my father was a teacher Mm. and he was a really beloved teacher. And yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're right. I actually love teaching, you know, and, and I have kind of found a way to teach anything I know how to do, I will try to teach someone else because I want them to share in the fun. I mean, I've taught cake decorating and aerial circus and songwriting and ukulele and, you know, life skills and literate drama, you know, kind of anything I know how to do. I've taught a lot of improv, obviously, but yeah, I do, I do like teaching. It's true. And sometimes just for survival, like I'll barter you this so I could get this, I'll teach this class so that my kid can get in when you're trying to scrape by. That's totally, my my husband and I did a lot of bartering. Um, So I would teach, um, I I started assistant teaching aerial circus so that my kids and I could do it. And then I started teaching it, you know, and I, we did a lot of bartering. My husband like used to do handyman work at the little gym so that Billy could have gymnastics classes. Uh Uh, Yeah. Worked, it worked out. Bartering so is a sweet. good system. It's very <laughs> sweet. Yeah, I fell in love with your husband watching the documentary. I mean, he is like the unsung hero of the movie, <laughs> always lurking in the background, taking care of the laundry or like in things, the kitchen paying shouting. bills or putting stuff away. Like, you know, not a lot. He's sort of just always there making sure that everything is a well-oiled machine, you know? <laughs> yeah, picking up the dog poop yeah, in the exactly. background. <laughs> Shouting, he makes noises. He always uh, made. He always has made noises. He and Billy have a lot in common mm. of like goofy, like strange noises and stuff. And he yeah. he's always doing that in the background. And sometimes, like a new person will come, like when Phineas's girlfriend Claudia came into our lives, 
<laughs> we kind of forget about like Patrick's oddities, you know? And then a new person comes over and they're like, what is your dad saying? Like, uh -huh. what's he doing? He's like shouting in the background. <laughs> yeah, he's unusual. I love his mustache too in the movie. Does well, he still have the mustache? No, that was a rough period. Yeah. I did not love it, but <laughs> I, I've always been it like- It was world class. It was, it was, but it was, I've always been like, whatever, you, you know, you do what you don't, you want to do. I don't uh -huh. care. Like facial hair comes, goes, do what you want to do, right? I've never- been controlling that mustache got a little old because yeah. we were on tour forever and it just kept getting more and more extreme. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with something uh, like that is it's the same currently for, um, I'm going to out Danny, Billy's manager for this. He has this beard that has grown and grown and grown through COVID. And we're just like, when is it going to go? But the more attention you get, like, because, you know, when you got a mustache like Patrick had, like everyone talks sure. about it, you know, everyone comments on it all the time. How can you get that, rid of that? Like it's, it's a conversation piece. Mm. Well, the movie was one of the best things that I've seen over the last year. I just absolutely love it. I've watched it a couple of times going into it, as I suspect, you know, this might be the case for a lot of people. I thought, oh, this will be a documentary about Billy's trajectory. And it of course is that, but it's really this incredible, like layered on top of this coming of age story is this incredible document of a family. It's really a movie about parenting as much as anything else. And this unit and how they're trying to navigate this crazy, insane skyward trajectory while trying to maintain sanity and remaining grounded in what is most important. Yeah, I think RJ did an amazing job. I think that's definitely how he saw it, you know, and he did a great job telling that story. They also used a tremendous amount of my footage, sure, which I think is new to documentaries, you know, to really have that kind of immense amount of phone footage, et cetera. Um, and he did a great job of like incorporating like real home events. Yeah. I think that was kind of his his goal to like have a story of a, of a family for sure. I think he called it Neo Verite. Did he? Yeah, <laughs> and it's so emblematic of Billy's generation, this generation of people who have their entire, every moment of their entire lives documented. You have this extraordinary archive. And when you wanna make a movie like excavating that and creating a narrative out of the entire you know process of going from A to B is available to you. It's available and also really presents a lot of unique challenges because you have so much footage, uh -huh. you know, and how do you, you could tell so many different stories, you know, and we all know that a, a documentary filmmaker could make, he, he could tell a completely different story. And that's a little scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're putting your trust into this person. <laughs> you are, and depending on which piece of footage you use, even a couple things in the movie, like if the context isn't there, that, that's gonna look really bad, you know? Like there's a couple things where, you know, I think they, they struck a balance in the end, but you know, if you don't show why that's happening, you're gonna look bad for mm -hmm. being upset about it. But if you go, oh, these are all the steps that led up to that, you know, and by the time you got to hear this happened, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. you, can, you can really sway a story. And I thought he did an amazing job in the end of like pretty much telling the real story. When he came to you and said, I wanna do this, was there some trepidation around that? Or what was the process of, of signing on for this? Well, first of all, my other big love is filmmaking and movies. I 
love movies. I am obsessed with indie movies. I made a movie. I wrote a movie. Mm -hmm. And I have always loved documentaries and, and small movies. So I had to have that in my, I knew it needed to be a documentary. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't really want to be documented, but I knew it was worth documenting. And I was already filming kind of all the time. So I could see myself that it was interesting. I think I thought in the beginning, like if I had been making a documentary before RJ came into the picture and everything, I probably would have been focusing on the fans because to me, that was an incredible story, mm -hmm. right? The the life of the fans, the beauty of the fans, the deep relationship. The connection is so profound the connection. between Billy and her fans. Yeah, and so I was really filming that myself. And so when, when people started saying, what do you think about a documentary? You know, I wasn't like, yeah, I really want our family to be filmed because I didn't, but I was like, yes, it's it's the kind of thing that should be a documentary. And then we met RJ and he just was so clearly great to me, you know, and the, the work he'd already done and the stories he'd already told. So I was pretty down, you know, mm -hmm. for that, you know. Nobody really likes to have a camera in their face all the time. I, I certainly don't. I'm very private to be honest don't really like a lot of people around. I don't know. And so definitely trepidation, but also, okay, I know yeah. this is a story we're yeah, telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I got so much out of it, not the least of which is just the power of effective parenting. So I'm interested in how you came to some sort of parenting philosophy, like you and Patrick in this approach to raising these two, you know, wonderful, amazing human beings. Mm, well, first of all, I think, thank you. We we were older parents, you know, we weren't young. I had always wanted to have kids, super important to me. So I knew that when we had kids, it was gonna, also I'd lost both, I'd lost my mother and Patrick had lost his mother young. And I don't know, I think that changes you. I think that, I mean, I know it changes you, but it gives you a real, mm -hmm. you, you don't go through, once you lose someone important, you don't go through life taking anything for granted, you know, things can change, you know? And so that, I think that informs my parenting right from the start, you know? Um, we desperately wanted, you know, we were so happy to have children. People always say like, oh, it's really gonna change your life. It's like, yeah, <laughs> really wanted to change my life. You're that, ready for that change. That's, that's what I yeah. want, you know? I wanna devote my life to someone else. And then some really key things happened. So we, we did attachment parenting, you know, that just all spoke to us. You know, we, we had a family bed, we had our baby kids in the slings. Both of our kids were super high need kids, you know, high need, you know, if people are parents, they know, like they weren't like the kid that sat in a car seat for hours, you know, Phineas would literally, he had sensitivity issues. He, he was only happy in a sling moving at all times, mm -hmm. right? So right from the start, we were like, whoa, this baby needs full, full on. on. Yeah. And then, you know, Billy was really the same, but different, but both, both, they were not like really super easy kids. And I, I mean, I wish for their sake, it would have been easier for them, but for me, it made me feel very needed and, and very involved. And I, I just kind of threw myself into that. And then you've got to learn a lot when you have high need kids, you know, you've got to learn how to cope with that. And, and so we took parenting classes. We went to the it's now called the Echo Center. It was called the Center for Nonviolent Education and Parenting. Mm -hmm. That had a massive impact. Nonviolent communication, yeah. One of the greatest things in the world, honestly. Um, 
to this day, it it's informs everything I do. I think I think about it. I think about the language of it. I think about strategies and needs and, you know, meeting people's needs. And, and, um, so we, we went to those parenting classes that had a lot to do with everything we did. And then, you know, a couple of interesting things happen. Um, Patrick saw a show about Hanson <laughs> and he was like, they were homeschooled. That looks fun. You know, he thought that was interesting. Little did he know at the time. Right. Isn't that crazy? Like, you <laughs> have no wild, idea, yeah. right? Hanson, uh-huh. you know, there was going to be a musical thing. And then Columbine happened and I'm from Colorado and Columbine rocked my world. I was, I was shaken by Columbine and planted the seed in my mind of like, maybe, maybe not school, you know, like what's, what's that about? It's not just about, it's about a lot of different things. And it just kind of put me on the track of Mm -hmm. like homeschooling, then started to learn about that. And then, uh, you know, once you, you kind of step into homeschooling a lot of times for one reason and then end up there for a different, just kind of stepped in thinking, well, I love being a mom. I love being with my kids. I don't really want them to be gone all day. Right. I bet we could teach what they teach in school in maybe an hour or two, and then we could do something else. But then you get into it and then you start to question the whole system. Like, mm-hmm. well, wait, why do we do this? Why do they go to school? And what do we get out of it? I'm not knocking having a school system. Obviously it's super important for a lot of people and it's it can be an amazing part of society. But when you start to question it, then you look at, could we do it differently? And how would that look? And because we had kids that were a little bit different, (laughs) I didn't really think it was gonna be super successful in school. Billy has an auditory processing. You know, she doesn't learn in the same way other people learn. Phineas has, um, you know, real um, sensitivity issues, you know. So it just didn't seem like it was gonna be a great fit. And so that kind of set us off on this sure. other journey. And then yeah. we found this amazing community. Mm-hmm. And so that that became a, a lot of our right. journey. Homeschooling can mean a lot of different things 100%. depending on who you talk to. And unschooling is a very specific strain of homeschooling. We, we were talking before the podcast, we unschooled our two younger ones. Our older boys had some homeschooling experience and also some traditional schooling. Um, so I'm steeped in this <laughs> and I'm a huge fan because we've raised our younger ones in that in that mode, they both decided they want more formal structure and are in different schools right now. Um, but I'm interested in you speaking a little bit about unschooling and your particular like lens on that. Well, again, there's there's as many ways to parent as there are, and there's as many ways to school or homeschool or unschool. And we were talking about earlier that you know kids change along the way, and, mm-hmm. and, and your job is really to give them what they need, right? And so if they need and they're they're wanting something that can be a, a satisfied in school, that strategy of going to school. Um, for us, unschooling was really just following their lead and um, helping them find what they needed at different times. Now, sometimes they took classes, like group classes, like we'd get a science teacher for a bunch of kids and they'd go to the park and they'd do cool stuff or they'd go to a, a group class where a parent who was a, something physicists would teach something, you know, sometimes it was that because they wanted that activity or there was really no other way to learn that thing they wanted to learn. Um, And sometimes it was like Phineas, when he got into music, we just started going to the Grammy Museum all the time. They had these cool classes at the Grammy Museum. So for us, it wasn't like 
you know, the, the philosophy of unschooling in our family was like, you're learning all the time. There's never a time when you're not learning. It's not like summer vacation isn't like we're going to stop learning because we learn all day, every day. You can't stop a brain from learning, really. You know, it's just what are you learning and how are you learning it? Mm -hmm. So you can learn math from cooking. You know, you can learn socialization from going to the symphony, <laughs> you know, and having to sit still. Um, both of my kids were in the Los Angeles Children's Chorus, which of course was highly disciplined and structured. Um, they both took dance classes. They took sports classes. They played ultimate Frisbee. They had tons of opportunity, uh, but it, it just was like a very flexible, what did they need? What did they want? What was missing from, like, like for example, I, I, at one point, I think with both kids, we kind of was like, oh, you don't know geography. You know, like they said something right. that was clear, like, oh, you don't know what mm. that's a state, right? And so like- That's okay. the thing that comes up because you think they know certain things <laughs> and you realize because they're not in a traditional school that they like, oh, wait, you don't know the months of the year? Like yeah. you assume that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then you feel like a bad parent. Yeah. You know, and you have to ru rush in and like solve Let's learn that, that problem. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but here, you yeah. know, so so that's exactly that. I was like, well, you know, this wish co-op that ma that I teach drama and songwriting at, this wonderful teacher, Rebecca, who's a mom, homeschooling mom, uh -huh. but she's an amazing teacher. She teaches this super fun geography class. So in the unschooling world, like we were not so much about like, you have to do this, but it was like, look, there's lots of reasons to take a class or learn something. One. Primarily because you're interested in it, you need to know it. And also you don't want to look stupid at a party. So in geography, we got there that way. We're like, look, this is a basic thing that you don't want to go to a party someday and not know, right? Mm -hmm. So, hey, Rebecca teaches this really fun class, you know, sign me up. They're like, yeah, I, I want to know. I want to take her fun class. So there's a lot of different ways to get there. And everybody always said to us like, don't you think they're gonna have gaps in their education? I was like, absolutely. But I have gaps in my education and I graduated with a 4.0 and went to college and I've got massive gaps in my education. There is no foolproof way to cover everything. So when you have a gap in your education, if it turns out you need to know that, then you learn mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. when do you learn it? When you need to know it, when you realize, oh, I wanna go into a career that involves this. Oh, you're going to need to know X, Y, and Z. Okay. Then you want to learn it, right? Yeah. Yeah. We wanted them to know how to leave a tip. You know, like there were certain things like you got to know how to learn life skills. Life yeah. skills. Like anything that's going to come up, come up on a daily level, we want to cover. And right. not all great about, you know, everything even there, but, you know, most teenagers aren't, you know? <laughs> yeah. The other, in addition to the gaps thing, the other big thing is, oh, they're not going to be socialized because they're not around other kids. I mean, in our house, there's so many people coming through all the time. Like that's just not a concern at all. And I think focusing on that is to be blind to the huge upside of trying to identify what interests a kid and using that to fuel the learning process. That way they're more deeply engaged in whatever it is that they're doing. And I think this is particularly important. I mean, obviously you identified having two kids who on some level were gonna be a little bit different, might be square pegs, you know, trying to jam into a round hole in a school. If you sent them to a traditional school, that school might just stamp out everything that's 
extraordinary about them through its own indoctrination and yeah. just the systemic you know aspect of what it is to go to like a school. Yeah, and also in our kids' case, you know, when they really were into something, which they frequently were even before it was music. Well, for both of them, it was also music early and then it came back to music. But to have the kind of time, you know, because it was kind of more like, it was almost as if what in normal school would be an extracurricular activity was their main activities and the other stuff was extracurricular, mm-hmm. right? So the thing that they were interested in, obsessed with was the thing they could do most of the day. Mm-hmm. And then they'd also do this or we explain something or we talk about something else. And obviously I think in Billy and Phineas's case, that made a major difference because sure. they could spend a lot of time doing what they love to do. Yeah, I think I read that you said the the rule in the house was they could stay up as late as they wanted to as long as they were doing something creative. Yeah, because you know, creativity comes to you at weird times. And a lot of times it comes at night, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true for every artist I know, right. you know? And so if you're like, you have to go to bed yeah. now, right at the time when their brain is always the most creative, that's not gonna get you very far. Yeah, I have to tell you, I watched the movie the first time myself. I was very impacted by it. And I brought my two stepsons in to watch it a second time. They're both musicians. They're recording their first album right now out in Highland Park at a studio wow. out there. Um, <laughs> and they're, you know, kind of, uh, they're 20, 26 and, and 24. And they're sort of tiptoeing on the periphery of the extended Phoebe Bridgers universe. Oh like, yeah, we know Phoebe since she was 17. Um, yeah, I'm sure of that. And they were very excited when Patrick was wearing the Phoebe Bridgers t-shirt <laughs> in the movie. They were like, that was their favorite part of the whole thing. Um, and they're working with uh, Harrison, Phoebe's guitar player oh, wow. is, is playing guitar on their album and helping them out and kind of mentoring them at the wow. same time. Phineas was in like a battle of the bands. He had a band, amazing uh-huh. band called the Slightlies. And he, his band was in a battle of the bands with Phoebe one time. It was like a music competition. And I think at that time, Phoebe took first and the band took second. Um, and that's when we first saw Phoebe. And she was like 17, yeah. I think he was 15. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> It's been cool to watch her just blow up. Yeah. And During Pat- the COVID year, I mean, nobody made During hay. During the COVID year. You know, this year, like she did. Yeah. It was incredible. It was a huge year. But Patrick, you know, Patrick, I mean, we've all been to many of Phoebe's concerts, mm-hmm. of course, but Patrick went to even more. Patrick is, Patrick is <laughs> a real music devotee. Like uh-huh. he, he listens to, like he takes his release radar very seriously, you know, and he discovers people. I mean, both Patrick and I take a lot of pride if we've turned our kids on to anybody, you know, good, you know, if they're like, Patrick, I think turned Phineas on to Noga Eris. I turned Billy on to Celeste. We mm. we are so yeah. happy if we if we made the discovery. Usually it doesn't work that <laughs> no, way. No, they're far. Yeah. They have they know so much more than we <laughs> I do. know, right? <laughs> um, but what I was gonna say was when I got the boys to say, I was like, you gotta watch this movie with me. And I'll tell you why once we're into it. And once Billy comes on screen and starts talking, it was so unbelievable how similar the way Billy behaves, acts, talks is to my oldest daughter, who's a couple of years younger than Billy, but it was shocking. Wow. Like I was like, I've never seen another human being behave like this kid of ours who, 
was also a very demanding child <laughs> you know, in, in a lot of different ways, in an amazing way, like she's incredible and I can't wait to see what she's gonna create in the world. But I truly thought that she was a one of one. And then I'm watching Billy and I was like, it's unbelievable how similar these kids are. Wow. It was, and the boys were like, I That's can't her. believe it. I can't believe it. Wow. Which was crazy. That is and crazy. kind of a beautiful thing to see. They're unique. I mean, they're unique. Obviously, they're they're similar in their uniqueness. Yeah, I but mean, extracting out the musical genius part of it, <laughs> you know, Mathis is an artist in her own right in a different way, but sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just it it is uh Billy has a really unique and obviously your daughter too, like ability to be her and yeah. she's her strong, her strength, her it's it's kind of mind blowing. It's 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 a little bit tough to put the guardrails up in the teen years, though, or oh. to know where the boundaries are and mm. where to back off and allow them to be who they are. That's it's the a, struggle that we're in right now. I found thirteen, fourteen, fifteen to be brutal. I mean, brutal. Sixteen mm-hmm. got, got a little bit easier, but it's hard because they need you so much, but they don't want you at all. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then they really do want you, and you have to be there. You know, when you've got little children, they take your face in their hands and they go, "I love you so much, mommy." You know, and then you get to this age where, you know, one moment they are just vicious to you, and the next moment they want to crawl in your arms and you know, be a baby, you know, it's really, and, and so, but you, it's really a, tra- a challenge in those mm. years. Cause you, they need you more than ever. They need you more than ever. And it's harder than ever. Yeah. It's <laughs> harder to show up for them mm-hmm. because they're repelling you at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think one thing about parenting that I think people should talk about more that a lot of times by the time get kids get to their teen years, parents maybe feel like, oh, this is a good time for me to go back to college or get a second job or do my own thing. People have to do their own thing, whatever. But I think it's really important to know in those years, your kids need you more than ever. Mm-hmm. And you just have to be careful to not, you know, to think you're done. You know, even if they're off at school all day long, you know, it's like, I, I, I've always, I've often thought for the last few years that have to under schedule, of course, Billy's a little bit different with the crazy career, but just in general, you just never know when they're gonna need you. They might need to talk at 2 a.m. and you've gotta be ready to do it, you know, no matter how tired you are, cause you gotta take those moments when they come, you know? Right. And if you're overbooked and yeah. you can't make those things happen, you know, they need you a lot. You gotta drop everything and be like, be here now, which is hard. It is. It's been really hard. (laughs) The relationship between Phineas and Billy is such a beautiful thing. Like the intimacy of that relationship, not just creatively, but just in terms of the friendship and the trust that they have is something amazing that I can only Imagine, you know, you helped cultivate his parents. Well, it's beautiful. It always has been, you know, they've always, you know, they had their few years in there where, you know, they irritated each other, but really from the beginning. And I think that is, to be honest, that's definitely part of homeschooling, unschooling. As much as my kids had a huge social network and they had tons of friends and activities, they also had many, many, many hours of the Mm. day together. And, you know, um, schools are segregated by age, you know, and you maybe even by school. So you go to this school and they go to this school and they were together, you know, sometimes many times in the same 
same classes. You know, we had calligraphy classes for a while at our house. You know, they were all in there with their friends. And so they definitely had a real bond of just being together and they just make each other laugh. I mean, the thing that's the best about both of my kids are funny. They're so funny. They're funny in different ways. Phineas is more like a witty stand-up. Billy is more like a, I always thought she was going to be like Jim Carrey, you know, uh-huh. like a groundling, you know. Um, but they're both really, really funny. And so they, the laughter, you know, you hear it in the beginning of the album, the last album without yeah. laughing. That's just them, you know, roaring with laughter at stuff. So that's been, you know, I think I said that in some interview, but it was kind of the currency of the house, which was like music and, and comedy kind of, you know, I was in the groundlings. I had an attic full of costumes and wigs and, you know, they were putting them on. Well, Billy was putting them on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're very, very close and, and it's a really special, it's lucky, you know. What was the moment where you realized like, oh, this is gonna be a thing. Like, was it with, Ocean eyes, or was it before that? Well, back to the conversation about being an actor. <laughs> you know, we've lived our lives as artists where there's no clear path and there's no clear reward for talent, right? And so I don't feel like we were overly optimistic, like not negative, but I also never felt like happiness depended on success. You know, Mm -hmm. I did write a movie and the message of the movie is kind of like the ordinary life is beautiful. You know, there's beauty in the ordinary life. So I didn't ever imagine. I mean, Phineas's talent for songwriting was so evident, so young. And of course he's four years older than Billy. So we saw that first. And so I definitely, as a songwriter, was blown away. And I I figured at at the very least, he would find his way into being a professional songwriter, Mm -hmm. you know, because it was, it was undeniable, you know, and I figured, okay, he could write him. He could write for other people. He could write for himself. He could write a musical. Like if the, if the industry didn't acknowledge him. And then when Billy came up and she had the most beautiful voice from, from the little kid, just the most pleasing, pretty easy to listen to voice. She was the same as a dancer, just easy to watch, you know? And, um, but I never, I never, I mean, you know, the kind of voices you see on TV are usually these, you know, big singer or whatever. Um, So no, I really didn't, I didn't ever kind of imagine this. And then when Ocean Eyes kind of took off, but I mean, you know, it's kind of always said like Ocean Eyes, like it was overnight. Well, overnight they got a thousand plays, right? Which was a big deal at the time, but it wasn't like it was on the radio right. or Didn't something. They, they wrote it for their dance class or something like that. And yeah. then just uploaded it to SoundCloud and exactly. overnight it got a thousand, but it was still a minute before it, it, got, oh, yeah. it must've gotten picked up by some blogs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, by some like KCRW. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, Phineas had written it actually thinking his band would do it. And then he had Billy sing and it was so pretty. And then the dance teacher said, we wanna do a song to something you sing, Billy. Cause she'd, she'd lo- uploaded a couple of songs she'd written with and to SoundCloud. And so it was really just like, they put it with a free download link, you know, hey, Fred, the song is on SoundCloud, you know? Uh-huh. And then this blog called Hilly Dilly ran a thing about it. I think Hilly Dilly had seen somebody, I don't know. I don't know. You know, somebody talked about it online. Right. Like and how do these things happen? How do these things yeah. happen? And, you know, and it had enough plays and it was just a unique enough time where there wasn't full saturation already. And then just people started calling, you know, man, and then, 
Phineas had known this manager, Danny, from working on something else that he, Danny managed a producer Phineas had tried to work with, had worked with. And so we were like, Danny, can you help us? You know, and then he was just, but you know, even then people say to me like, did it blow your mind when Billy was like, you know, at Radio City. I was like, it blew my mind when she was playing the hi-hat down the street. You know what I mean? It all blew my mind. Like a song on KCRW, that's, that was insane to me, you know? So everything was kind of miraculous, you know, but looking back, that was, it was a full year of, of meetings, you know, of Billy and Phineas writing songs and, and just meeting people going Mm -hmm. to meet the Spotify Mm -hmm. people, going to meet the, this people going to meet labels. There's a lot of meetings in there. So they, but they were creating the whole time, but all of it was amazing. Like the idea, I've said this before, but it's very true for me, you know, to be a month and a half after Ocean Eyes is out, we're in Spotify offices in New York, like sitting there and they're playing their new songs. And I was like, you know, it's like when you're in a world and there's a door and beyond that door is this whole other world. And suddenly we were beyond that door in this whole other world. And I hadn't even known there was a door. Mm, You know what I mean? Like I didn't know how any of it worked. Once you're on the other side of that, everything happens really quickly. Yeah. And it's like, and I had to learn so much because she was 13 and then 14. And I had to learn all about them. How, how does the music industry work? And what are all the names? And what, what's a sync? And what's a split? And what's a... It's so complicated. It's I was an entertainment lawyer and people would call me and say, can you do this music deal? I was like, no, I don't, I don't understand music at all. Like I understand <laughs> film and television. I know what the rules are, you know, sync and writing and publishing and... The mechanicals. ASCAP and, and all this stuff. I was like, forget it. It's the most confusing I business know. in the world. Yeah. It is so confusing. And we have this wonderful attorney who for a long time was just helping us out like because we didn't because I had made this movie and it had a lot of music in it and so he'd kind of given me advice mm. for free and so he was so patient with me just explaining all of it and it was a steep learning curve for yeah. the first couple of years it was really steep which of course puts you in this precarious situation because we all know the trope of the stage parent or the hovering overly involved parent yeah. who becomes controlling or the you know steps in and says forget about the managers i'm going to manage oh, you God. and all of that <laughs> this generally goes sideways quickly and also for the young person for the talent right for every justin timberlake there's you know, a lot of terrible stories about stuff that's gone sideways. So you're suddenly foisted into a situation where you're trying to guide this very young, talented person and her older brother, do it responsibly and try to keep everything like grounded. Like that's a very difficult situation to be in. Yeah, And I think the movie, sorry to step on your words, but like the movie like does such a good job that's why I call it a parenting movie. Like you're meeting these obstacles as you come and doing everything in your power to like make the right decision for your kids. Yeah, it was very stressful to be honest. And and I think even before the part where the movie takes off the, the, the couple years before that, I mean, I would see a friend for coffee and and if they would if they were interested I'd just be like, "Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Here's my life. I don't know what to do." And you know, it was it was highly stressful because yeah, you're responsible for your child, 
but you're not, I didn't want to be the manager, obviously, but you, you But know, you want to be involved, you want to be involved. there. Nobody's going to care about the, the needs of your child like you. Nobody. They might say they they have that best interest at heart, but they don't. But they can't, they can't, yeah. they can't because they have another agenda. They have to. And, and part of that is maybe to benefit this your your child's career, but you have to help discern like, what is that coming from? What's the reason? Is that a good reason? Is that a valid reason? And also, listen, not everybody's coming into your world. We we were lucky. We have amazing people on the team, but you know, again, like they weren't coming from the same place of caring about not just not just her career, but her legacy. Her and and by that I mean what you do for the world and how you do it. You know, and and that includes like your your merch and every single decision you make. And she was also young and making mistakes and being a human being, you know, in the age of Twitter and everywhere else, you know? So the kind of uh, role that I found myself in, which was like, also I'm her mom, like who's Mm -hmm. she gonna get mad at? She can't get mad at everyone else. The only one she can get mad at kind of is me. So kind of like what we were talking about in general, is like, they're taking kind of all of it out on you. And you're like, oh my gosh, I really want to run away, but I have to stay here because I actually have to protect you. (laughs) You know, I have to kind of still fight for you, even if you don't maybe appreciate it right now. So it was a lot of learning and a lot of talking and a lot lot of making sure everybody on the team was Mm -hmm. great and had the best intentions, had the best moral code and, you know, and always being watchful of that and, and, um, and learning along the way. And, and even then things happen that weren't great, you know, even then not with her immediate team, amazing, but it's a big wide world out there. And it's really, it's, you can't, you can't micromanage everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was really very challenging. But those early decisions create the foundation for everything that, that comes later, right? Like, so it's still the same manager, same label. Like same it seems label. like you staff this up or helped make those decisions in an effective and responsible way. Well, we were very lucky with the fact that Danny Ruckerson and, and, and Brandon, the first managers who are still the managers, um, because we were lucky because we had gotten to know them a little bit through this thing that Phineas was doing. And they, Danny had always been super respectful of Phineas, super res- and he wasn't his manager. He was just dealing with him from someone else. He was very nice. He was responsible. He was a good person. And so we came into like immediately we're like, can you just be the manager? Because we already knew he was a good person. Mm. And, and, and then they worked so hard. And I think that role, that manager role is so, so very, very crucial. So we were lucky from there. So then they helped us like meet the right people for all the other things, you know, with us kind of giving our feedback and giving our vibes and, you know, vetting things. But that was important. I think young artists, you know, how would you know? But that that's a very important relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and layered on top of all of this, I mean, Billy's been very open and forthright about her own mental struggles with depression and self-harm and body dysmorphia and all of that. So that's all like kind of, you know, on top of this whole thing, which heightens it all for you as a parent. Yeah, and all of that was heightened by what she was doing. I mean, you know, when when you're sitting in a hotel room in Germany and for the first time you start reading vicious hate about yourself, that is hard. 
And and listen, everyone in our family, everyone in her team has gotten it, you know, but nothing like like she gets. I mean, you know, and because she was so close to her fans, she wanted to have that contact and that access. And, you know, at a certain point, you have to push that away. Yeah. But yeah, when you're parenting someone who's in an extra, who's going through the normal teenage things, and then they're in extraordinary circumstances, very... Extraordinary circumstances, <laughs> extraordinary. like unbelievable circumstances. Mm, yeah. yeah. In an extraordinary era where we have no roadmap. And I imagine you felt that way even with your younger kids, like even the difference between Billy and Phineas as far as social media. Totally different. Totally different. And I mean, I remember hearing... Um, Paula Poundstone say like, she doesn't trust any parenting book written before video games. Uh (laughs) You know, like there's certain things where like all kind of parenting philosophies, all things kind of got, you couldn't really rely on a book or anything because we're pioneers. Like who's had kids in the era of this to know how it's all gonna turn out? Nobody. Nobody, (laughs) yeah, nobody. Yeah, like the kid, you know, the kid who can't, you got to take the phone into the bathroom and you're watching a TV show. It's like, it's constant, you know? <laughs> well, Billy lives oh with God. the office. Yeah. I mean, she's been open about it, but she- What fin- is it about the office <gasps> that she, she finished this it generation again yesterday. can't get enough of? It's crazy. It's crazy that, you know what? It's familiar. I mean, I think first of all, once you watch it once and you think it's funny, I know she said, I'm not saying anything again she hasn't said. Again and again, again watching and again. it over and over and over again. But it's familiar. It's like, you don't have to almost like, you can miss a part. You don't have to think too much. Like, you know, it's like, they're like your friends, mm. you know? And the office, I think, I don't know, groundbreaking. I don't know. Uh, it was just a little bit before we got more, politically correct. And I'm not saying anything wrong with politically correct. I'm saying, you know, being more sensitive. We, we're in a more sensitive society now, which is mostly good, but the office was a little before that. Mm-hmm. And so I think for young people, it's a chance to like explore and hear things that- Feels risque. A little bit. That's so funny. <laughs> um, the scene in the movie that, that I'm sure everybody wants to talk to you about is the, is the Justin Bieber scene. Cause it really is this emotional anchor to the whole thing. Like that, that moment that um, Billy has with him that's preceded by, you know, her explaining her love affair for Justin over the years and how intense that was. To see that embrace was so powerful because he's perhaps the only person on the planet who could really understand what she's going through. Like, it's so cool when that happens. It's so amazing that that's filmed and chronicled in that way. Um, But the moment for me that I found to be the most interesting was the scene in the backyard where she's essentially blocking her music video and you're sitting at the table as the oh, stand-in. Yeah. And she's like, this is how it's gonna go. And this is what the camera's gonna do. And it's not gonna do this, like those other cheesy things, it's gonna do this. <laughs> now mom, pick up the water and drink this. Yeah. And she's literally making her music video with the camcorder or the phone or whatever it is. And I just thought, everybody else just needs to get out of the way because mm. this kid knows exactly what she's doing. She has such a command over her creative voice and such a sense of purpose and direction with where she wants to take it. And it was so beautiful to see that at such a young age before any of those things manifested, mm. that confidence, that self-assuredness in what it is that she was here to express. That's so nice. Um, I always wish I had, 
like put some makeup on and worn like a little nicer clothes and <laughs> that. Little did you know. Because who knew? <laughs> this was going to be in a documentary. Oh <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Um, I think that through the whole thing. And a lot of times it's me filming too. And then it's like, and then if somebody, mm. I look horrible, but that was really that was her though. She was making movies like that from a very early, she made music videos with her friends, bossing her friends around, telling them what to do, assured, you know, she knew what she wanted. She had the, you know what? She took her first steps into a video camera because from the earliest days, she wanted that camera. And so I was filming her, Phineas was there and she wa- she goes, Missy, and she wanted to look at the camera and she mm. walked into the camera. We got her first steps on camera, but from the earliest days, she wanted that camera in her hand. She wanted to see what was going on. She understood it. Then she had her friends come over. She filmed everything. And I mean, I'll say parenting tip, maybe if it's a tip, let your kids have the bloody camera. I mean, now that, you know, it's a phone, but you know, we always let our kids like use the real stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like have the real camera, have the real tripod, have the whatever, mess up the house, trash it. But she was making movies with her friends from from so early. I remember coming out one time and she, and we have a little house, you see, come <laughs> out in the backyard. She's put the aerial circus mat on the ground outside the garage. She's put a wedding dress on from a play that I was in, the Heidi Chronicles, that I kept the dress. Mm-hmm. She's on top of the roof. She's got a camera set up. She's filming herself jump off the roof onto the mat with the camera, like in a wedding dress. Uh-huh. Like she would come up with these crazy ideas early on. And I think that's like another parenting lesson. Just think how many kids are out there who right now you know, could make it art. I mean, they are. Listen, Loxa is full of kids making amazing art. Schools all over the world are making kids not in school. They, they, you know, gymnasts are at their prime at these ages, right? And and so are a lot of young artists, you know? But that was definitely her. She She's always like that to this day. She's directing her videos and, you know, watching yeah. every take and, you know. Yeah, the, 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 she finally gets to make that video <laughs> yeah. with this director. Amazing then, director, by the way, Yeah, Carla. who's amazing, but then she's still like, next time I'm directing. <laughs> like, she's like, I don't need this guy, you know? <laughs> you know what? He was awesome. He had a very quiet voice uh-huh. though, so she couldn't hear him. So she made them turn the monitor around so she could see it herself. Uh-huh. And, you know, she had a very clear vision. And then people kind of were like, if she's gonna have that clear a vision, it's really kind of not even fair to the directors. And so if she's gonna, co-direct, it has to be a director who's like, knows going in, like she's gonna have mm-hmm. a lot to say. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, um, but what I extract from that, like in a broader context is, it, and from a parenting point of view is just the, the, the power of like allowing kids to be kids and just getting out of the way. Like I said earlier, like in that scene where you're being a good sport, you could have been like, well, you might wanna think about this, or <laughs> did you think it? No, you don't say any of that. You just let your kid have this exploration. Uh, I don't know about jumping off the roof, but like there's (laughs) something to be said for just, you know, letting kids be instead of policing them or overscheduling them or putting them in a specific lane and saying, you're gonna be this. Like so much of parenting is just receding into the background in those moments and providing them the space so that they can indulge their creativity. Yeah, and carrying the stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Like uh, Phineas said that to somebody recently, you know, you don't need to buy your kid a $3,000 guitar, you know, they don't need that. 
you know, what, what can you do? You can help them haul their stuff into the car and haul them stuff out at the band practice or whatever. You've done that so many times. Right, yeah, it's yeah. like you're just hauling it, like making sure they get there, you know. Um, yeah, it's allowing it and not, not kind of over pushing it. You know, a lot of people, I think they're like, oh, my kid is interested in this. So the next day they Here's have- Here's my parenting moment. Yes, yeah, my parenting yeah. moment. They're gonna have a classical guitar lesson. They're gonna have a $3,000 guitar and they're gonna have this like, yeah, it doesn't have to be that, mm-hmm. you know, cause also that's a lot of pressure for kids. You know, most, you know, this was another parenting thing that was hard, but we parented, I, I we parented in the age, I'm really happy to say was with the kind of anti good job philosophy. Do you know that? No. Okay. Well, there was, oh, I'm not going to remember his name, but there was a great set of essays and things that was about the overdoing of the phrase, good job, right? And I felt fortunate that we were able to hear that philosophy because there's a kind of overpraising that happens to kids, you know, like good job carrying your this and good job peeing and good job. Uh-huh. It's like, <laughs> what does that mean? Right. And and so <laughs> it was it was kind of a philosophy more about like it's less about what I think about you and it's what about it's how you what you think mm-hmm. about you, right? So let's give the example of like because I taught aerial circus for a long time. If somebody climbs the aerial silks for the first time, I don't say good job. I'm like, you did it. You got there. How does it feel? You know, it's more about your accomplishment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and when Phineas was a little kid, he was like this kind of precocious drummer. Like we got it. He wanted a drum kit at, at three, and he would drum and he would go crazy, and it was great. But then sometimes people would come over, and they're like, "You're an amazing drummer. You're the greatest drummer." That's like very counterproductive for kids. Um, Phineas went to a karate class one time. He loved this karate class so much. Like you could see the light in his eyes. He was running around, had this long hair. He loved it. And then at the end of the end of the class, the teacher goes, all right, at this studio, we have a ritual. We always have a student of the day and they get the head, you know, the whatever the headband mm-hmm. is to take home. And my heart sank. I was like, oh no, oh no. Phineas is going to be the student of the day. I know it because he was new. And of course he was. And he got that headband. He got to take it home. It ruined it because all he now cared about was, oh my gosh, I was student of the week. Oh my gosh, I got the, the headband. I got the this. And the I got pressure. the that. And well, and also like, okay, I'm going to be the student of the week again next week. And I'm like, I know you can't It becomes be. performance oriented as performance opposed to just oriented. fun. And yeah. then the next week he's like, why wasn't I student of the week this week, mom? I'm like, well, they give it to a different, different kid every day, every week. He goes, yeah, but I really worked hard and I was the best. And I was like, but that's not what it's about. And the whole, the reward became the external prize. Mm-hmm. Before they had the reward, he loved the class. Yeah. And it, it literally sunk it. And I saw it happening and it was the most visual, physical experience of it. Like the reward has to be the doing. The reward is making the music. The reward is learning the, the thing. It's not the prize mm-hmm. at the end. The mm-hmm. prize can be fun, but yeah. it's not the reason. Now take that example and let's play that out in a huge broad context. <laughs> Billie Eilish sitting at the Grammys 
they're about to announce the winner and she's mouthing like, please don't let it be me. I mean, is that any different than the Phineas in the karate class? It's kind of the same thing, it's right? It's kind of the same. Well, it's slightly different because you know, the reason don't let it be me is because she knows she's gonna get so much hate. You yeah. know? It's a weird world we live in. So it's like, that's gonna come with- But the pressure so and the responsibility the, the that comes with that. Yeah, and it's very like, yeah, it's, it's like you love doing it. And when it becomes more about, you know, I mean, even in a way like, you know, I mean, Phoebe's in kind of a beautiful place, but you know, you get to this place where now it becomes about record sales. It becomes about this, Mm -hmm. it becomes about that. And the joy always has to go back to the doing. It's always about the doing, you know? And we we need to keep bringing it back there and keep bringing it back there. And, And I guess that's even what I try to do now is like, are, is Billy, is Billy's team letting her care about the doing, you know, is Mm -hmm. there enough room for that, you know? And then sometimes there's a lot of pressure that you can't because you've got to fulfill a lot of obligations to a lot of people. And that's part of the game. But if you don't keep coming back to the art and the making of the art, then what's the point? And again, to your legacy, what can you do with that? What can you give back? I feel like they have a pretty good grip on that though. I mean, for people that are listening or watching who aren't familiar, I mean, this record came out of Phineas's bedroom. <laughs> and, you know, that's literally where it was recorded. Um, the appreciation and the love for the process seems to be pretty intact. Although maybe it's a little, was there some weird trepidation when Phineas got his own studio, his own <laughs> house now, and it's not back in the bedroom and you you've know taken what, the, over that room? It had the same vibe because yeah. it was in the basement studio of his house, you're right? Uh-huh. So it was kind of the same vibe right there. Um, and she just went over there every day. I mean, I was sad because I didn't get to hear it um, all day, every day, like I did the first album, but I was doing support and feed. So I <laughs> had a uh-huh. lot of meetings to deal with. So it was okay. But yeah, I think it kind of for them always has the same vibe because it's just them and it's, you know, it's just at his house. You yeah. They can always go up and make a sandwich, you know. I was listening to your po- the podcast that you did with Tig Notaro and, and Cheryl Hines. They're so funny. I know, they're great. <laughs> um, and Tig at the end asked you what you would do if Billy came to you and said like, I don't wanna do this anymore. Like on this subject of like, pressure and it kind of becoming something that betrayed its roots or its origin and that love or that passion for the actual just doing of the thing goes away. You know, it's all, it's all what she wants to do. You know, it's, it's, you know, things change in your life. Sometimes you don't want to do something and then you come back to it. And sometimes you don't want to do that, but you want what it can get you. And you do it because you want what it can get you, whether that's again, being able to use your platform or whatever it is. So you just got to always make those choices. And that was definitely a um, feeling I had from the beginning of like, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you watch your money, you mind your money, you don't overspend ever. Um, you donate a lot of it and you watch the rest of it because you want to be able to quit at any moment, you know? You want to be able to, you know, unfortunately, Joni Mitchell said it best. You've got a whole team of people <laughs> that are on your payroll, right? And you care about them too. Mm-hmm. So that becomes definitely important, you know? Our crew was mostly laid off last year for the touring crew. You know, we had to care about that and figure ways to help that. And, you know, you do have a lot of people that you're kind of responsible yeah. for, but you know, there's a balance to that, you know? I mean, right now she's got a big tour coming up and she's really, really excited about it. But 
you know, at some point she doesn't want to do that, she do something else. Right. You know? I love that the tour is tied to this mission though, making it service oriented and about something more than just Billy and the music, you know, and it just gives me so much hope and optimism for the future when I see Gen Z stepping into this role of activism and taking our world's problems seriously and doing what they can in their own right. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. And I mean, we've kind of, I mean, I was talking to Jaden about this. I mean, we've kind of thrust it on them. Mm -hmm. They don't really have a a choice at this point because it's, you know, we're we're in a- (laughs) They've inherited this shit show. They really have, um, but they are really stepping up and change is happening really fast. I do think it is a tipping point for a lot of it. And yeah, to be able to go on tour and have all these young people like watching our social media for support and feed and and mine. And and they're watching because they care about, they care about climate change and and food justice and how to be a better person. And they care care about all that. And, you know, to be able to go out and have this eco village on tour and resources for for kids and and families it it's it is pretty it's pretty awesome it's pretty inspiring and um you know billy's been able to support um the fender play program and provide a lot of musical instruments to a lot of kids and you know a lot of things that she has opportunity to do that that continue to make it all worth doing. Yeah, it's so powerful. I mean, I'm a child of the seventies and the eighties. Like that was just not part of the equation. If you liked a band or were going to a concert, it was about the opposite of that, if anything. Oh yeah, it was, yeah, it was. I mean, you know, Billy's not alone. I mean, we were so happy that call with Chris Martin, but Mm -hmm. you know, the Dave Matthews, all these bands kind of laying the way for it, you know, who've been socially active the whole time. But now that it's becoming more like, you know, getting people, all these people signed up for the music climate revolution, you know, so many, it's becoming, I mean, you want it to be mainstream. You want it to be normalized. You want it to be the default, Mm -hmm. right? That you're going to be the outsider if you don't do that. If your tour isn't climate positive, it's going to be a problem, you know? Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) Uh, What's the advice that you would give to parents, specifically young parents, like what do you see parents do? I mean, you've done such an incredible job with your kids being conscious in the way that you've raised them to be these amazing beings. I mean, that doesn't happen by accidents or accident or happenstance, like that's very intentional. So when you see other parents out in the world making mistakes or what comes to mind in terms of how you'd like to see people think about how they're raising their kids? Well to be empathetic with people now, they have a lot of challenges too, because they have a lot of competition with phones and and content, a lot of competition and a lot of challenges in what content kids can see. So I think parents have it extra rough right now. Of course, they also have easier things. Like I remember going like, why isn't there drive-through, you know, pickup at the grocery store? Well, now there is, you know, Mm -hmm. like there were things as a parent that I would have loved to have that now do exist, which I think can take a little pressure off sometimes. But I think the pressure on parents right now is really hard. And I think being able to put down your own devices and be fully present for your kids is probably the hardest things parents face right now because their work literally is on their phone, you know? So I think that's super important. Just giving your kids the time and the space and and getting some help. Parenting classes, especially nonviolent communication classes mm-hmm. are, they're worth it. 
they're worth it. They'll change every moment of your future life and they'll get in your kid's DNA. And that's important. When I hear, when I first heard Phineas model back to me, mom, I think what you're trying to say is that you have a need for, you know, ease. And I'm like, what? Like, holy cow, you know, like, cause you want to be better than your parents before. And if you can just keep that in your mind, like, I'm going to try to do my parents. I love my parents, but I want to try to do a little better and then I'll get that in my kids' DNA and they'll do even better, mm-hmm. you know? And that comes from getting resources and help and uh, especially on that that path of nonviolent communication and empathy. If I had to do over again, I would have taught meditation really young. I tried to teach it too late. <laughs> I tried to get that in there uh-huh. a little too late. I would establish that mindfulness um and restorative justice, you know, all those, which we did, you know, like we never punished, we never had rewards. Mm -hmm. There was never a punishment or a never reward, no consequences, you know, the consequence, if anything was the natural obvious consequences, something happened, someone cried. You made, you know, what your action did made that person sad. That hurts. How can we, how can we make amends? How can we make it better? And not just say, I'm sorry, but like, what could we actually do that would help? And what did your action come from? What was the need you were trying to meet with that strategy? And let's talk about that. You know, that's a whole, that's a lot of deep stuff, but it all comes from just getting some support. Yeah, I mean, educating yourself and being curious about how to effectively parent is so important because left to our own devices, we're going to just repeat whatever our parents did. And when we're not doing that, we're generally parenting in opposition to the way we were parented because we had some need that wasn't met. (laughs) And so we're like, I'm not, I'm gonna make sure that my kid gets that need met. But of course that pendulum is probably swinging too far in the other direction. And then you're just ping ponging back and forth, but to really have like these tools and understand how to communicate effectively. And listen, you know, I'm like, I'm not the worst, but I'm not the best. Like I, I screw up with this all the time because my button will get pushed and then the thing comes out of my mouth and I know that wasn't what I was supposed to say. And then I have to fix it. And you know, well, yeah, that's it's no, so messy. It's so messy, but that, you know, I talked to, uh, you know, Dr. Burke Harris, the Surgeon General, it's like, it is messy and you can't, you can't, you can't do it perfectly, but it's how do you handle it after that? You know, mm-hmm. what do you do to repair it or to correct it or to look at what's going on? And, you know, that's kind of the best we can do, you know, but you're right. It's, it's, it's taking the time to really invest in parenting the way you would invest in any other job that you're given mm-hmm. to learn all about it, to know you're going to make mistakes, but to be learning and reading and talking to experts, listening to people, the best you can do. Yeah, and not for nothing. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that can't, they're not gonna be able to unschool or homeschool. Of They've course. got multiple jobs and you know the pressures that come with that. So you're in a unique situation in that regard, but the fact that you shouldered it and did it so beautifully and took it seriously because you can also unschool a kid and just be on autopilot and be doing your own thing and the kid is doing nothing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Unschooling is the opposite, should be the opposite from your kid doing nothing, you know, because it's really more like, you know, we we were out in the world all the time, like, Mm -hmm. you know, day in, day out on activities and field trips and projects and then a lot of fun home time too. But yeah, it's not about doing nothing. That that's just neglectful parenting. That's like a different thing. Yeah. So how is uh Phineas doing these days? (laughs) 
Ace is good. He, he seems by Instagram, which is not exactly <laughs> an arbiter of truth, but like he looks like he's living his best life right now. <laughs> Phineas is a, uh, he, he loves to work. He loves to make music. He loves it. It's, it's his go-to. If you're at his house and you know, the conversation lags, he's playing the piano and singing and he's, you know, making his own music, putting out his own album of always working with Billy. And he works with lots of other people too. He just kind of lives and breathes it. He has this amazing dog and amazing girlfriend. And yeah, he's living a, a nice mm-hmm. life. Like he really, you know, takes his dog for long walks and loves to hike. And, and, um, and as always, one of the things I love about Phineas, so I love everything. And he's very funny, as I said, and he, he works on himself. You know, he really takes his therapy seriously. And he, he always tries to, you know, you know, the demons Phineas had as a child, we all have, they're in us, you know, the sensitivity issues, the things that we all have, and we need help, you know, coping with them, learning mm-hmm. to cope with them. And, you know, he takes that seriously and, and really works on it and tries to, you know, be a better person. And he's very generous and he's very generous with, you know, us and donations and, you know, That's great. he's, he's very funny. <laughs> it feels like he's really found his thing. Like he can be part of the, Billy Eilish, you know, mechanism, but he has so much going on outside of that at the same time. Yeah, he's found a way to to really, you know, and and like Billy, but in a completely different way. You know, she she makes all these. She wants to be very involved in her videos, and she has this vision. He's not so interested in that because he's busy, you know, in this other realm of scoring and mm-hmm. producing and creating in a different way. Does that create constraints or time pressures on how the two of them are now collaborating? Well, for sure. I mean, they had this year of writing where they that's mostly what they did. And then they finished the album. And then of course, then you have to go into pre-album mode. Mm-hmm. That's an intense period, you know, and that doesn't leave a lot of time for writing. And I know that, you know, you know having time together and, and being able to create is something they, they miss in these periods, you know, but now we're into also rehearsals, rehearsals for festivals, rehearsals for touring, you know, more for festivals now. So they get to have that time together, but yeah, it's, again, it's a balance of like, you know, do you have enough time with the people you love? Yeah. How do you make that time? And, you know, we still try to have like fam, you know, family dinners or come over for lunch. So you're still in the same house. Everyone's still coming over and hanging out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pretty great. <laughs> when does the tour kick off? February. February. Oh, so you have a little. You have yeah, time. but we have major, she has major festivals mm-hmm. in September and mm-hmm. October. Major, like headlining festivals. So you're just basically going to go from zero to 90 minute headlining sets. You and know? you go to everything. You I do, and Patrick yeah. go to everything. We and do. What's, well, what is your, like, how do you qualify your role now? What does that look like? I think I'm technically her assistant, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Patrick is on the crew. So he is, he works on the crew and I kind of just am involved in, in everything from, you know, talking to her team and helping her day-to-day manager figure out the schedule, you know, like when would be the best time for this, for her, for all the things she's trying to do. And, and just kind of taking an eye on everything and like, how's it going? And mm-hmm. Is she happy? And is it is, her, is she getting her needs met? Same kind yeah. of deal. Uh, who's who's getting their needs met? Who's not? How can we help? You know, what's the overall goal? And and also like 
can you order this from me? Can you pick this up at the store? You know, right. can I have a glass of water? <laughs> you know, where do you know? How do you know where the line is in terms of your appropriate role, though? Because I suspect as she gets older, then that line's going to shift, and she's going to sort of separate a little bit more. I got this. I'm good. For like, sure. You know. Oh, I, I'm always trying to look at the line, yeah. and I'm always kind of pulling back and then going, "Did I pull back too far from that? Did she need a little more help with that?" Her team also, to be honest, kind of depends on me. You know, I have a role that she, ha- her life is too busy to be making all the decisions that sort of fall to her, you know? So I have her ear at weird times, you know? I can ask her something when no one else would be able to get to her. I can say, hey, I'm thinking you want this for lunch. You know, they're ordering from um, my vegan. Mm-hmm. You want the spicy noodles, basil? You know what I mean? Like it's it's a weird kind of access and shorthand that I have. And of course, as we go along more and more people get certain clues into that. Um, so then I'm like, they don't need me for that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, yeah, maybe they did need me a little for that. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, you know, you know, maybe I could have been helpful in that one. Um, I wasn't at the video for the snake and cause I had a job that day, an acting job. And I was like, I was like, she's like, fine. And then later she was telling me about one very dangerous part. I was like, she goes, if you would have been there, you would have stopped it. And I was like, yeah, I should have been there. She goes, I would have been, I would have been so mad at you if you stopped it. So, <laughs> and she's like, well, I was a director. I could have yeah. stopped it. So. Well, there's those things, but then there's also like, I would imagine like helping her navigate how to communicate with her audience because no matter what she does, there's gonna be some thing that happens that may or may not require her to say something publicly. We've had a couple rounds of this. There was one the other day. I mean, I would imagine that's really trying. That's the, that's the yeah. worst, that's the hardest. That's the hardest Yeah. because there's no perfect answer, you know? Again, we don't live in a society that's super forgiving or is comfortable with anything in the middle, you mm-hmm. know? So it's super, it's super hard. And she has a big team, but again, you know, I have right. really her best interest at heart above all else, you know? Um, so that that's that's probably the most challenging, but that's just a challenging world right now. And I don't really know how to, I don't know what we're all supposed to do about it, yeah. you know? I, I mean, it, that's a big subject, you know? What happened to, being human and why do we judge people on the smallest mistake, even if they made it or or they didn't even make it, somebody literally made something up about them, you know? And where do we judge people on their actions and their their benefit to society and all the good they're doing, you know? Restorative justice again, you know? What happened to that? Why did it become this? It's so troubling. Like the instinct is to judge people at their worst moment on their worst day and make that a referendum on who they are as a human being. And we score points by taking people down a peg on social media. It's like a sport to people. And those people are not cognizant that they're dealing with real lives and that there is impact to this. And so how do we, you know, inject this social media ecosystem with some level of humanity and compassion and empathy? Like it's, I don't know how you solve that problem. I don't either. And we've also given people like an incredible power, you know, to be able to say things and create yeah, a noise everybody, anonymously. Yeah, and, and a few people can suddenly, you know, corral an army of people and then 
a thing exists that maybe need not exist. Maybe need not, or maybe didn't even, and it got changed. And, you know, a lot of times I look at even my own hateful comments and I'm like, I look at the, you know, the account and there's, they have no, they have no followers. They have no posts. They're it's trolls. Crazy. And, and but yet Billy's they fans get, love you. Like if you go oh, on your Instagram, all these like amazing. fan accounts for Billy are always like throwing you so much love. Well, I love her fans, but that's my point is that sometimes I think these things get started by people who are not in the fandom at all. In fact, maybe are not even on the progressive side of society mm-hmm. and things get started. Um, we're quite quick on the progressive side to cancel people and sure. hold people very accountable. And the, maybe the other st- spectrum isn't very interested in that, but they like to take people down. So you have to be careful. I think people, I, I wish people would start to think like, is this a person we want to destroy? Or is maybe this even coming from from someone who would want to destroy that because they're, you know, have a different agenda, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a really scary time that that's why I say, like, you look at the account, you're like, wow, this person isn't even a real person, or at least we don't know who they are. Yeah. So where is that coming from? And I, I don't know. That's why I keep, I've been thinking lately just more and more about like, we have to make this move toward, um, more compassion and restorative justice and a different, way of looking at people's mistakes and flaws and and humanity and uh, and that has to be a two-way street no matter where you fall you know on the spectrum yeah you have to be forgiving and accepting and like and learning can we learn it's about how can you learn right can you learn can you change can you grow um do you learn do you change do grow And, and you can give that benefit of a doubt to any to anyone on any side right to side, I mean, mm-hmm. side is a dangerous word, but you know, on any phil- philosophical point, can you learn? Can you be compassionate? Can you grow? And um, I mean, I think about, you know, I mean, it's nothing new. People, people who are, this generation is in a, a unique position. It's crazy, <laughs> it's crazy. And you being a mom, I mean, your daughter's like 19 you know, with untold millions of people who all have the right to say whatever they wanna say about her, the protective instinct, like I just, you know, it's like, I wanna oh. hug you. Like I can't imagine, <laughs> you know, it's how hard challenging not to shout. that is. It's hard not to shout and yeah, and, and, yeah. and say stuff, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's hard. It's really, you can't protect them from this. And it's, I don't know, I mean, is she the, be- you know, I mean, I know very talented artists whose careers have been destroyed already. They'll never really have the career they they merited because of something stupid they said at 15, Mm -hmm. you know, on the internet. And and maybe it was really actually bad and they actually meant it at the time or something, but is that worth destroying them forever? You know? We're just in this infantile or adolescent stage with how we're reckoning with social media because it's so unprecedented. I can't imagine, you know, Billy's generation is the first to grow up with this from the get go. Everybody is gonna have their lives completely documented. Everybody's saying stupid shit and making mistakes and there's video of it. So is everybody gonna get canceled? I mean, how are we gonna, you know, select the people that are gonna be criticized for these things. Like, I mean, thank God these things didn't exist when I was a kid. Well, that's what everybody says. It's like it's like an episode of Black Mirror. The whole thing is an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah. That's what it feels like. It's it's so extreme, you know, it's so extreme. 
I don't know. It's infantile. You say like, how do we teach people? You know, I would go, you know, my niece is a school vice principal and she's trying to get, you know, nonviolent communication, restorative mm-hmm. justice into the schools. I think we have to start teaching from day one, like in our homes, in our schools, you know, mindfulness and compassion and all these things, but that's a tall order. It's yeah. a really tall order to yeah. imagine. We have that. a long way to go. We do. But if you look at the vegan movement and everything that's going on, yeah. it's crazy. It's it's compared exciting. to where it was not that long ago. Yeah. So thirty five years ago when you were a kid in Western Colorado telling your dad you didn't want to eat meat. I was not a kid in 35 years ago. I was like a full on, I'm not, I'm not thank you for However the- However long ago it was, I don't know. <laughs> I was you a look kid fabulous, so but. long ago, but <laughs> yeah, like, can you imagine? I mean, you know, I had years I ate a salad and a dry baked potato, you know, and mm. I was so happy that if there were some kidney beans in the salad bar, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard you talk about how you spent years, if not decades, sort of being apologetic, like always overly accommodating to every everybody else because you don't wanna ruffle feathers. I know what that feels like. And I love what you had to say about letting go of that and just being like, why am I apologizing for being who I am? Yeah, and why am I apologize for, for being who I am who's doing something that is right, is, yeah. is, is morally making, making better. Making a positive impact. Yeah, making a positive impact. There's nothing negative about the way I, live my life as far as my diet is concerned, right? It's only positive. It, it's more positive to the climate. It's compassionate toward animals. Why would I apologize for that? Why would I? But I get it. <laughs> and I think this is a dilemma for a lot of people who wanna step into this lifestyle because it's so socially fraught and they mm. don't wanna have to be a problem to their friends and their family members. And I think it scares a lot of people off who might or you know, might wanna take a look at it because they don't wanna be difficult. Mm. But I think it's empowering to let people know, like you don't have to apologize. And we're now in a culture where wherever you go, there are vegan options and people get it and they're more accepting, if not embracing of the whole thing. And we don't have to be in that mindset anymore. We can like stand in our strength with this way of living. Yeah, and still be, you know, you still find yourselves in situations where you have to be, you know, not shouting about it because yeah, it's just not the time and place. You have to be gracious. You have to be gracious to the kindness of the people around you and their journey and you can't be shouting about it every time, but that's different from being apologetic, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the that's the change. You know, I used to be invisible about it and like don't mind me, you know. I'm sitting I, in the corner with my Tupperware. Yeah. <laughs> I brought my own food. Yeah. I made a whole separate entree because I knew there would be nothing mm. here for me to eat, you know? And now you, you know, you may find yourself still in places where, you know, people have a different philosophy, but you know, I I deal with my part of it differently. Right. Um, it's not permission to be obnoxious. No, it's definitely I think that's a beautiful way to say it. No, mm. you don't get to be obnoxious. You just don't have to be cowering and, and apologizing. Right. In the meantime, we can all go out and support, support and feed. Yes. And so you're in four cities, right? Uh, LA, Washington, where New else? New York City New York. and Philly. And how many restaurants do you have Ooh, involved? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. 
Um, but many, a lot, yeah, <laughs> many in New York and LA. I looked at LA. I mean, there look it looked like at least a dozen. Yeah, we have a lot, and and also we don't just it's not just restaurants. You know, we also help provide a kind of a pipeline for products. If someone has extra almonds or extra follow your heart cheese or mm. extra something, and we can help get it to people who need it, or maybe to a restaurant to make more meals for people. We've done a lot of that as well. And like I say, we're going to be in in many many cities in 2022 and even in Europe because of oh, wow. the opportunity yeah, with this tour, with tour, feeding people, meeting people, expanding the mission. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, all 50 states and that's so cool. Bigger presence. And the tour is just going to be like steroids. Yeah. It's, it's such a lucky opportunity. It's such an amazing, and we have the support of Everyone on Billy's team wanted to do it. You know, we had Billy's team volunteering, people from Live Nation, people from her record label mm. all year. They've been delivering food with us. That's cool. Isn't that cool? And from an individual perspective, if somebody wants to get involved, they can go to the website, sportandfeed.com, right? I think it's sportandfeed.org. Dot org? It or? will be in July. When okay. we launch our new website. I think I looked, there was both dot org <laughs> yeah. and dot com that, up there. That's but just I didn't a know middle ground. Was, we'll okay. be launching, I think July 12th. Got it. And it'll Do you be, have your 501c3? We have a fiscal sponsor and our 501c3 application is in. Yeah, so it takes a long time. Yeah, we're in that mm. middle ground, but they can they can make donations that are tax deductible. Right. Um, and yeah, every you know everything, you you know you support support and feed you're you're feeding someone you're helping provide um a nourishing meal you're also helping us you know help people get materials about their own health and the climate etc of course you're you're supporting the climate just yeah. by replacing that meal with a plant-based meal and does it work like you can pick a restaurant like i want to choose this restaurant and donate to that one and then they will provide the food that goes to where Currently, yes, it does. How that's not tax deductible though, because legally that would be sort of a money laundering thing. Right, I got so you. So you, yeah. if, you if you direct donation directly to the restaurant, then the restaurant is donating to us, if that makes mm, sense. Mm -hmm. um, or you can just donate to our general fund and you could specify a city. You could say like, I want I it to be in LA or Philly or New York or something. And how do you identify where the, where the meals get delivered? We have this great network of wonderful organizations. And like I said, we, we've really tried to partner with orgs where we, we can make an impact for them. They're interested in what we're doing and providing this healthy food for their, for their families. So, you know, we're, we're looking at organizations in, you know, these areas of food apartheid and that have these community bases, you know, New Earth Life is an amazing organization that has kids from 13 to 25 in, instead of incarceration or between incarceration, mm -hmm. we've also fed all their families. So it's where we can make the most impact with people who are food insecure, but also really make a larger impact to create systemic change in the community and right. with what's available to them right. and what they can- The real solution, not the band-aid. Yeah, the bigger solution. You gotta do something around the release of, they're trying to kill us when that movie comes out. 100%, yeah, yeah. I, I'm waiting for that. We have some great plans for that too with That's Billy. Cool. So yeah, I, I, I hope they get great distribution and everyone can see yeah. it. Well, it's good talking to you. So nice talking to yeah. you. I'm such a huge fan of you and your family and everything that you guys are about. I, I just love it all. And please consider me a support system for you if you ever need anything and good luck with the tour and everything that you're doing. Thank you so much, yeah. so nice to meet you. I really appreciate the work that you're doing and oh. it's super inspirational how you've raised your kids and the example that you set and how you lead with service. 
Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so honored to meet you. So <laughs> if people want to um, connect with you, obviously supportandfeed.org and then <laughs> Maggie M. Baird on Instagram. On social, Is that yeah, the best Instagram, place Maggie, to go? Maggie uh-huh. M. Baird, yeah. And, and support my, and feed on Instagram as well, right? Support and feed on Instagram. I think we have a TikTok too. Oh, you do? Either now or yeah. shortly. All right. <laughs> I love watching the cooking thing that you did with Toby, Toby. and his son. <laughs> they're, they're superstars. They're so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super fun. I All right, cook well, anything with them. <laughs> come back and talk to me again sometime. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks. you so much. Peace. Plants. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. (laughs) 